Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? This stuff is slippery, this horror stuff, this true crime stuff, this rape, this murder, this secondhand suffering, this repurposed pain is slippery, makes you twitchy like a rabbit, peaceful like a tortoise, adrenaline dumps until you're somehow relaxed by it, looking up wistfully from your menial task as I describe a patch of woods riddled with Jane Doe skeletons. We're addicted to it. Murder takes us away from our own problems, makes us feel like prey, and in turn injects excitement into an otherwise empty day. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it's a little fucked up. Junk food for the soul, maybe, but overall I think there's a slick charm to the whole genre that gets overlooked by those lacking imagination or the need to feel afraid in order to feel alive. We're prey animals, you and I. Our great-great-grandchildren will have eyes on the size of their head as a result of our interests. We're creating neural pathways that will lead to a need to be victimized in order to feel like we're fulfilling our purpose. And I'm joking. Or at least I was until I wasn't. It's slippery, this true crime stuff. Slippery until it's sticky. Like a con man. In the 1955 movie Night of the Hunter, Robert Mitchum plays the character of Harry Powell, a sinister charlatan who woos moneyed widows, then kills them for their bounty. On the right-hand knuckles of Mitchum's character is the word love. The left hand carries the word hate. Though not a spot of blood is shown, the film is parts terrifying and chuckle-inducing. One shocking scene involving the marauding Casanova's final victim shows the woman's corpse submerged in a river, hair floating around her dead white face, a slit in her throat like she had an extra mouth. The monster of the movie is not a fictional character. Powell is based on real-life killer Harry Powers, one of the first men in modern history to be labeled a serial killer. Though if you don't include his suspected killings, 50 some say, he's just a mass murderer. Labeled the blue beard of Quiet Dell, what the pudgy-faced Powers lacked in looks he made up for in drippingly sweet love letters. Hundreds, if not thousands, of which he sent under assumed names to lonely women across the U.S. who answered his phony ads for marriage. On August 27, 1931, when he was arrested in Clarksburg, West Virginia, he had seven such women, 
ready to walk down the aisle. Two would become mush in a water-filled drainage ditch, the bodies of three children dissolving nearby. This mess existed outside a torture chamber Powers had constructed, with money given to him by his actual wife, a moron of a woman who, despite what he had done, was still smitten with her dolly dimple sugar lump until her dying day. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 018, The Bluebeard of Quiet Dell. Asta Buick Iker was lonely and broke. Her husband, a gifted silversmith, had died seven years earlier in 1923, and the 50-year-old widow had mismanaged her inheritance. The Great Depression's onset at this time did little to brighten her prospects. With no money left, Asta was forced to take out a second mortgage on her home in the Chicago suburb of Park Ridge. To make matters worse, she had mouths to feed. Greta, 14, Harry, 12, and Annabelle, 9. It's unknown when she first learned of the American Friendship Society, but for $1.95 a year, she became a client of the matrimonial agency, receiving letters from presumably affluent men looking to take a wife. One ad in particular caught her eye. Unfortunately, it had been posted by Harry Powers. Posing as Cornelius Orvin Pearson, Powers, 39, said he was a well-to-do widower, worth 150 k about $2.5 today. He had a fully furnished 10-room brick house, acres of land in several states, and an income as a civil engineer of between $400 to $2,000 a month. What he didn't have, according to the ad, was love. My wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money. She would have nothing to do but enjoy herself, but she must be strictly a one-man's woman. The term catfish to describe a romantic liar wasn't yet born, but the portly unemployed powers with his close-set eyes behind tea-shade glasses was a slippery catfish in spades. He had no money of his own, no real job beyond occasionally working the counter at his wife Luella's grocery store. He frequently left town on trips that Luella never asked him about. He slept not just in a separate bed from his wife of four years, but in a separate room in the house they shared. An unusual arrangement, even by 1930 standards. In January of 1931, unaware of the silk filament from Powers Webb clinging to her, an unsuspecting Asta Iker began a long-distance relationship with the man she called Connie. The two exchanged dozens of letters, each successive missive dripping with more romance than the last. By June, arrangements were made for Connie to visit the woman he called Honey Deer. With Connie's impending arrival, and at his urging, Asta told her longtime tenant Charles O'Boyle that he would have to move out. A man she described as a family friend was coming to stay. Harry Powers, a.k.a. Connie, arrived at the Iker home on June 22, 1931. Neighbors, peeking through drawn curtains, watched as the well-dressed visitors spent four days around the home doting on Asta. 
Three days later, Asta called on sitter Elizabeth Abernathy to watch her children for a few days. Blushing like a schoolgirl, the middle-aged widow told her friends she was headed east on a business trip. The neighborhood grapevine believed the business was matrimony. The sitter later recounted, Mrs. Iker called me to care for the children on June 25th, and when I arrived at the house, she said she was going to take the trip with Mr. Pearson, who arrived five days before. The sitter said that when she arrived, Asta pulled her aside and told her not to mention the money problems she was having. Then, with barely any time for Elizabeth to assess the situation, Asta was gone. Days later, a letter signed by Asta, but looking nothing like her handwriting, arrived. In it, she said that the house had been sold and that Pearson was coming to pick up the children to reunite them with their mother. The following evening, after everyone was asleep, Powers' gray Chevrolet pulled into the Iker driveway. He let himself in with Asta's keys and stayed overnight. In the morning, with his crystal blue eyes sparkling and a lilt in his voice, Powers regaled the children with stories of his fortunes, his mansion in the East, and the adventures that were in store for them. He promised Harry a pony and a dog, Annabelle violin lessons in Europe, and a doll with shiny blue eyes. To Greta he promised a piano and a beautiful dainty car, the kind of car girls dream about. The children were enraptured, imagining the glorious life that awaited them, unaware of the cobwebs that trapped them too. But something about this stranger made the hairs on the back of the sitter's neck stand up. When Powers announced it was time to leave, Elizabeth protested slightly. I told him the children were not dressed suitably for a long trip. The girls had on beach pajamas and the boy a bathing suit and trousers. He wouldn't let me pack any, but said he would buy clothes on the way. Powers, chomping on gum as he usually did, waved off the suggestion of luggage. Packing the car would make the ride uncomfortable for the children. Then, paying the sitter for her time, he grabbed the Iker's expensive silverware and hurried the children to his car. Elizabeth watched nervously as the Chevrolet disappeared from view. But before carrying the kids away from Park Ridge forever, he made one stop. Five months later, in a theater-turned-courtroom, bank teller B.E. Coughless told of Asta's oldest daughter, Greta, walking into the bank with a letter from her mother, asking for the balance in the account. The signature looked forged, and no amount was named, so I told the little girl to write her mother for a signature, like the one on our books. She never came back. It didn't matter anyway. Unbeknownst to Powers, Iker had only $4 in her account. Her safety deposit box contained a single penny. The news that Greta was unsuccessful on her mission likely put the swindler in a foul mood. Did he hide his anger, continuing to charm the children on the 560-mile trip to Clarksburg? Or, knowing there was no escape for them, did the tip of Harry's silver tongue split serpent-like, revealing the thorny, poisonous edges of his rotten soul? We know that soon the darkness would be revealed and that poor little Harry Iker would be tormented by the hellishness longer than all of the rest.
Harry Powers was born Harm Drenth in 1892 Holland to Wilco and Grigia Drenth. After wreaking havoc on his poor parents, the blustery, bratty boy immigrated to the U.S. at age 18 to join family friends in Iowa. His father, mother, and sister arrived a year later. Wilco Drenth said that from infancy his son was a beast. Harm was demanding, mean. He lied constantly and was always drunk. He never wanted to work on the family farm, saw it as beneath him. He boasted about bullshit and was downright rotten. The last showdown with his father came when Harm attacked his mother during an argument over milking a cow. Father Drenth was forced to nearly strangle his aptly named son to death in order to end the dispute. In the aftermath, Harm disappeared, but not before selling the farm out from underneath his family and keeping the proceeds, of course, to himself. By some accounts, he married a woman and moved to Wisconsin, where he was busted for auto theft. While in jail, his bride smuggled him tools, and Harm and another inmate escaped. By 1921, the first wife was out of the picture, and Harm was infatuated with a girl named Rose. When he found out she married another man, he broke into their home and set the place on fire, earning himself a 15-month stint in prison. Upon his release in 1922, Harm Drenth was dead, and his place was born Harry Powers. Scores of aliases soon followed. Cornelius Pearson, Charles Rogers, Joe Gildo, Cornelius Matthias, A.C. Morris, D.P. Lothar, A.R. Weaver. At the suggestion of a friend, Powers joined a matrimonial agency and quickly turned the game into a con. In 1924, under the name Gildo, he married a woman, then dosed her coffee with sleeping powder and made off with her valuables. That same year, he was arrested in Ohio under the name of Harold Biorgio for theft. He fleeced another woman with the promise of marriage, then stole her jewelry. A third woman said she married Powers as Cornelius Matthias in 1929, and they lived together a short while before she was abandoned at a rest stop, her new car, cash, and jewelry disappearing with her counterfeit husband. By that time, Powers was already married to and sleeping in another bedroom from the hapless Luella Struthers. Despite Luella's claim that they were childhood friends, investigators found syrupy correspondence between the two that revealed the couple met through a Powers marriage ad. Her letters were gooey with lusty innuendo, though by most accounts, sex was not a driving factor for Powers. Growing up, he didn't transition into the natural progression of dating. At skating parties or canal rides in Denmark, he always had male companions. He refused to associate with the opposite sex, and as his father put it, quote, he had no use for girls. But sex, it seemed, for Luella, was ever-present. In her first letter, she cooed, I'm considered real nice-looking, and always attend strictly to my own affairs. I have a real loving disposition, as loving as a sick kitten on a warm brick. In a series of more impassioned epistles, she wrote, You certainly are a fine-looking gentleman, and I think awfully sweet, and would be a real prize for little Luella. A month later, the new friends were better acquainted. My dear honey man, your sweet and most appreciated letter was received and 
Read many times with pleasure. I thank you so much for the dear kisses. They were absolutely delightful and just taste like more. Oh, won't the real ones be delicious when I get them from the real sweet honey man? It's easy to picture Luella slipping around in her seat as she wrote. I'm just starving for some of your real sweets since I tasted the sample. Oh, but I am so desirous to get my arms around you and hug my dolly dimple sugar lump to a finish. <laughs> Holy fuck. The two were wed in Maryland in 1927. It was the second wedding for Luella. The first, which she'd kept secret from her sugar lump, took place in 1903 at the home of her parents on the land in quiet Delaware. Powers would someday build a subterranean death chamber. Coincidentally, Luella's first husband, Ernest Nisley, was also charged with murder and later acquitted for cracking open the skull of a man with whom he was fighting. The prosecutor in that case would go on to defend Harry Powers 28 years later. Something about the flame-haired, jello bowl of a woman kept the never-horny Harry from leaving. He moved into the Clarksburg home she shared with her spinster sister, Eva Bell, and took a gig selling vacuums. The women ran a small grocery store, funding Harry's every whim. Luella, 45, doted on her husband. Whatever he wanted, he got. She even proudly admitted to giving him the $700 he used to build his murder den, in Quiet Dell. Sure, I gave my husband money. And don't I know a lot of men who get married and don't do a lick of work afterwards? My husband worked around the garden, even did the dishes, worked around the yard just the way my pa used to. I'd give him enough clothes at Christmas time to last him. We had good food and many things, even cigarettes and chewing gum we had over at the store. Harry told Luella he needed the garage in order to make plans for houses said he had to have a place where he could use acids for blueprints. When Luella agreed to finance the endeavor, Powers evicted the tenant who lived in the old farmhouse there. The next day, the cottage burned to the ground. A day after that, Powers began constructing the windowless building. In the cellar, he built four chambers. On the ground level, a trap door was in the center of the room. The garage was finished in early summer. Luella's eyes grew tender her voice like a caress when she spoke of her husband. Why, I treated him like a mother as well as a wife. In the morning, I'd bring him a nice drink of soda from the stall. He'd smile up at me and say, Okay, honey. At night, if it was hot, I'd go into his room with the electric fan and leave it with him. I loved that kid. He was good and kind to me. I loved him from the bottom of my heart. German immigrant Dorothy Pressler Lemke had used a matrimonial agency before. In 1914, she began corresponding with Albert Lemke. The couple quickly married, took up residence in St. Paul, Minnesota, then lost a son to influenza in 1923, and parted ways shortly thereafter. The death of her only child, coupled with the discovery that her old man had another wife in the old country, was too much, so she headed to her sister's, in Massachusetts. The death of her only child, coupled with the discovery that her old man had another wife in the old country, was too much, 
So she headed to her sister's in Massachusetts, a.k.a. Massachusetts. A news article of the Lemke divorce, because back then Dirty Laundry was not just aired but pressed, apparently, has Albert claiming Dorothy was impossible. Plus, get this, she'd thrown a banana at him. Dorothy countered that she'd never thrown the banana at Albert, whom she called a slave driver and an autocrat. A word from Dottie here, quote, It is common knowledge that a banana is a small, soft fruit, incapable of being propelled with such force or violence without disintegrating. Now, in her late 40s, Dorothy took to the Lonely Hearts ads again. Soon she began exchanging love letters with a rich Virginia businessman named D.P. Lothar. In 1931, Lothar made his first and only appearance in Northborough, Massachusetts. He stayed for a few days, even spending the night with Dorothy's sister, Gretchen Fleming. Then, out of nowhere, Dorothy announced she was leaving with Lothar to be married. The sisters said their goodbyes on July 28th, and Dorothy rode off in the passenger seat of her new fiancé's gray Chevrolet. Later, police would find Dorothy's camera with undeveloped film inside. The pictures, full-length photos of Lothar and his bride-to-be, were taking on the fateful trip from Northborough en route to a non-existent farm she believed to be in the Midwest. Dorothy is in the same dress that would next be seen as it was pulled from a muddy trench. Police would also find some of her love letters in a trunk stored in a Clarksburg shed. One especially compelling, heart-melting excerpt from Lothar went like this. You certainly are a well-preserved woman for your age. You look real healthy and wholesome to my thinking. I never did take a fancy to slim women, but prefer a woman to be real plump. In another, Lothar referenced a sex psychology book he'd sent Dorothy. The chapter on the art of love is the most valuable. When you have read some of these books and have known a little more about sex, I would like to suggest we exchange our sex histories. For the impressive paragraphs, he plagiarized tender prose he pulled from advice columns for the lovelorn. Two weeks after Dorothy left, her sister Gretchen received a letter, postmarked Union, Pennsylvania. Everything was a disaster, Dorothy wrote. The wedding was off. She left Lothar in Ohio somewhere and had taken a job as a companion for a wealthy woman. In a second letter, postmarked Chicago on August 18, 1931, Dorothy said she was going on a trip around the world, and Gretchen shouldn't worry if she didn't hear from her for a while. Gretchen and her husband Charles both agreed. The handwriting was a woman's, but it was not Dorothy's. When news of the deadly Romeo's shocking murder scheme hit the presses, the Flemings took one look at a picture of the beady-eyed powers, bruised and battered from a police interrogation, and recognized him as the man they knew as Lothar. Weeks later, Gretchen would be shrieking, inches from Powers' wincing face in the Harrison County Jail, proclaiming him to be the man who stayed at her home, the man who drove away with her sister. A news photo of the confrontation shows Powers standing mute, his shirt tucked into pants pulled up too high over his round belly. Gretchen, standing eye to eye with the fiend, is shoving her finger into his chest. A shiner is noticeable over his left eye. When the grieving woman, sister, was finally finished... Powers turned to the deputy at his side, indifferent now to the spectacle, and announced, I have nothing left to say. Let the court settle it. Gather round, good people, 
of evil I will tell Did you hear about the crime at Quietdale? A little pig-eyed grocer is sitting in a cell Did you hear about the crime at Quietdale? So if you love your neighbor, go home and get your gun We'll drive the devil out of West Virginia in 1931 Up around Clarksburg, there's a little piece of hell Did you hear about the crime at Quietdale? The abrupt eviction from the Iker's house in late June 1931 miffed Charles O'Boyle. He loved the children, cared deeply for Asta, and had been friends with the family for years. Still... He harbored no ill feelings. Asta had been kind enough to allow him to leave some tools behind in her garage for safekeeping. On August 22nd, he went to the house to collect them. The place looked abandoned until he spotted someone darting from the house to the garage. O'Boyle had never seen the man before, and he crept to peek inside. The stout, impeccably dressed stranger was poking around the garage. O'Boyle rushed to the police station, returning with Park Ridge Police Chief Harold Johnson. The men confronted the stranger, demanding to know where Asta and the children were. A charming smile parted the charlatan's thin lips, an edge of chewing gum peeking out from between his teeth. Powers introduced himself as Cornelius Pearson. Oh, I put them on a train to visit family in Denver, he said. Then he told the men he bought the house from Asta, producing papers to prove as much. He lived in Fairmont, West Virginia, he explained but was in Park Ridge to prepare the Iker place to rent it out. With things appearing legitimate, the official asked the man to stop by the station the following day. As the police chief left, O'Boyle, still suspicious by Powers' too suave performance, pretended to leave as well. Instead, he began questioning the neighbors. The blessed busybodies knew nothing about a trip to Denver. They said Asta left with this Pearson fellow weeks before to get married that Pearson returned in early July to collect the children, that he rode off into the sunset with them, too. When O'Boyle went to the station the following day with this news, he waited with the chief for Pearson to arrive, except Pearson never showed. If Chief Johnson up to that point thought O'Boyle was making a mountain out of a molehill, Powers's failure to keep the appointment changed the landscape. They returned to the Iker property to find the man gone, the house empty of belongings. In the garage, where they found much of the furniture, they hit the mother load. Fifty-four love letters between Pearson and Asta that read like a chapter book toward marriage. The envelopes were postmarked Clarksburg, West Virginia, not Fairmont, as this Pearson character had claimed. Chief Johnson contacted the police in Clarksburg. They had no Pearson there, Chief C.O. Duckworth said. The license plate Johnson had written down from the car the man was driving turned up stolen. With his curiosity piqued, Duckworth went to the Clarksburg post office to inquire about the man who collected mail from Box 277. He offered the description provided by Johnson. 5'5", five, five, paunchy, well-dressed with round glasses, an air of aristocracy about him. The postmaster immediately knew the man to be Harry Powers. Sure enough, surveillance of the P.O. box confirmed Powers was the person collecting up to 20 letters a day from lovelorn women nationwide. On August 27th, with little more than speculation, Powers was arrested in the disappearances of Asta Eicher and her three children. 
In his pocket were letters addressed to women up and down the eastern seaboard. Powers wrote about his upcoming marriage to each. In fact, one woman in Hagerstown, Maryland, who'd undoubtedly tried on her wedding gown more than once in anticipation, expected to be exchanging vows with him in two days. Those letters were just for fun, Powers said. He knew nothing about a missing Illinois woman named Iker and her three children. Then officers found some of Asta's things at Powers' home. Children's clothing, a baby bonnet, toys, articles of furniture, cooking utensils. In his sister-in-law, Eva Bell's room, they found a church miter box engraved with Annabelle Iker's name. In the dining room, they collected the Iker family silver. Oh, that Asta Iker. Powers suddenly remembered. Why, I put her on a train to Denver to marry a man named Charles Rogers. He lied. Then Chief Duckworth got word of an isolated garage Powers had recently built on a hillside in Quiet Dell. The construction began right after a mysterious fire burned down a small home there. It was a strange setup, neighbors said. They never saw a car pull into that garage, but Powers had been there several times past midnight recently. A neighbor thought she once heard a scream. Warrants be damned in 1931 West Virginia. Duckworth and his officers headed to the low-lying building located on a side country road about half a mile from the state highway leading to Buckhannon and broke into the evil-smelling place. On the blood-stained floor, they found strands of hair, droplets spattered the walls, a tattered couch that folded out into a bed was open and soiled brownish-red. A hatch in the center of the room led to four soundproof chambers below, each able to be locked by heavy wooden doors. In globs on the cellar floor were dark pools of coagulated blood that had dripped down from the floor above. On a rafter directly above the first floor trap door was a noose, with bits of flesh still clinging to it. A funeral director called to the scene confirmed as best one could in an era before forensic testing that the blood was human. And this place, he told police, smelled of decaying flesh. When a neighbor boy wandered in to say he'd helped Powers dig a sewer ditch that ran from beneath the building about 25 feet to Elk Creek, the police chief called in a prison chain gang. As hundreds of onlookers crowded the dirt road leading to the garage, half the inmates shattered the concrete floor of the cellar with picks. The other half began excavating the swampy ditch. The muck there held secrets, first revealed when a bit of burlap was uncovered. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing 
to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. All right, everybody. Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... (laughs) Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks, if you're not a nicotine user, or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Disappearing people was becoming a trend in Clarksburg. On June 10, 1931, Stamatios Sfikis, a Greek immigrant and married father of an infant son, vanished. Powers was friends with the shoeshine parlor owner, and police said he was the last person to be seen with Sfikis. The following November, the immigrant's remains were found in the tree-drenched hills with an obvious gunshot wound to the skull. A 1994 obituary announcing the death of the slain man's son states the elder Sfikis was killed by the Ku Klux Klan. It's difficult to confirm if this is true, since in the scores of articles written about him, no one seemed to care to get the spelling of his name correct. Another fellow in Harry's orbit went missing too, sweeper salesman Dudley Wade. Harry Powers and his boss Wade had been embroiled in a legal battle after Wade accused Powers of stealing vacuums. Police found the equipment in a garage at Powers' house, but the always honest Harry said he had recovered the purloined sweepers and was storing them in order to send them back to the company. The cops didn't believe him and arrested him, but he was found not guilty and awarded a couple hundred bucks for his troubles. Wade was last seen in 1928, and it doesn't appear he was ever found. After Powers' arrest, letters poured into Clarksburg asking officers to look into other disappearances of women from across the country. In all, police counted 115 pen pals with whom Powers was corresponding. Many of them were never located. In a book where he kept a list of his romantic contacts, there were codes next to each name to indicate, among other things, how familiar his letters to them should be. Next to Asta and Dorothy's names, was the code 
P-15. Investigators found a key to the codes which revealed P-15 meant graveyard. Perhaps P-15 was the future for Luella and Eva Bell, too. Several people with whom Powers had contact before his arrest said he'd mentioned the sisters were going to sell their property and go away. Disappearing was a theme with which Powers' father, Wilco Drenth, was familiar. After his son left the family and stole the farm more than a decade earlier, no one had heard from him again. In the hunt to unravel the Bluebeard's background, reporters tracked down Wilco in Sumner, Iowa. He was still farming, but now with his son-in-law, Everett Schrader. Wilco's wife and daughter had since died, and still there'd been no word from his son. The news of what had become of the child he named Harm didn't surprise him. The hard-working old farmer stared at the news photos of his adult son and in broken English acknowledged it was him. We thought he was dead. I never heard him again until he showed us a picture in the newspapers. After silently reading the accounts detailing what his son may have done, Wilco stated his thoughts as plainly as he could, with his hand on his overalls over his heart. He is my blood, but if he killed those women, let him go. Then, drawing his thumb across his throat, he made a final declaration. If he really killed those people, why feed him? Hang him. Three years after the state did just that, Wilco Drent's grandson, Jr., saw smoke coming from the second story of the farmhouse the family shared. The boy ran upstairs into his grandfather's bedroom. In a heap on the floor was Wilco, gun smoke still rising from a self-inflicted gunshot wound through his chest. There was no note. Everett said that although his father-in-law brooded some over the waywardness of his son, he never spoke of him again. Whatever made Wilco Drenth kill himself will never be known, but it's probably safe to assume that the heartbroken father was a victim of Bluebeard too. On August 28th, a day after Harry's arrest, the Sylvan Hills around the garage and quiet dell were crowded with onlookers. A Harrison County chain gang was beginning to explore the swampy ditch that led from Powers' murder shed to a creek, a ditch neighbors thought useless since it ran at right angles with the building and did not drain the cellar. The building was oddly constructed, too, prompting hired workers to balk. Powers had fired them, declaring he'd finished the job himself. I'll build the damn building any way I want. Weeks earlier, a neighbor boy had helped Powers fill in portions of the ditch, and the teen, as we know, told police as much, sparking the frenzied digging this day that solved the riddle of the missing women. Thirty minutes into the task, inmates unearthed what looked to be a burlap sack. Chief Duckworth slit the end of the sack open, and the body of a woman was exposed. Asta Buick Iker's decomposing corpse was nude, her hands tied in front of her with cord, her head bashed in. Fifteen minutes later, fighting through the stench that made many on the chain gang ill, Asta's babies were found. The children were wrapped in sheets. Harry and Annabelle huddled in one, Greta in a separate shroud. The girls had gags in their mouths, their hands tied behind their backs, wounds on their necks and heads. Harry was also gagged, his hands bound, his head wounds delivered by a bloodied hammer found with the bodies, had destroyed his skull. Officers rushed to the jail to confront the tubby culprit, interrupting a card game. Powers showed no reaction to the news. He was stoic as they put him in chains. 
Word of the bodies had spread like wildfire through the community, and an angry crowd was growing outside. The cops led Powers from the jail through a secret route to avoid the mayhem of the lynch mob. At the morgue, the sheriff paraded him in front of the pitiful display of Asta and her three dead children. The sheriff forced Powers to look at each body and demanded, Who is this? Powers shrugged each time, saying only, I don't know. He learned later that night that I don't know wouldn't cut it any longer. By morning there was a confession, and Harry Powers no longer resembled the clean-cut salesman surprised by an arrest. Both eyes were blackened, his body was bruised from head to toe, his carefully coiffed hair was sweat-dried into curls, his thin lips were swollen, his nose was flattened. Some reports say that his arm was broken and hot-boiled eggs were placed in his armpits, to exact a confession. When the pastor arrived and used biblical passages to convince him to confess his sins, Powers collapsed into tears and unloaded what he'd done. The formal signed confession read, I did, in the month of 1931, murder Mrs. Asta Eicher and her three children, Harry, Greta, and Annabelle, by using a hammer and by strangulation. I further state that my wife and my sister-in-law knew nothing of the slangs and are innocent of anything in connection with these murders. The less formal recitation went something like this. Still playing the role of adoring fiancé, Powers took Asta Eicher to his isolated garage in the town of Quiet Dell. Luring her inside with some pretext not revealed, he led her to the basement, then beat her into one of the soundproof cells. Asta remained locked there for days as Powers drove back to Illinois, played the doting, wealthy benefactor, and collected her children. With perhaps the same ruse, he got the three young Ikers inside his murder den, then shoved the girls, Greta 14 and Annabelle 9, into one chamber, and 12-year-old Harry into another. Did he toy with them for days? That much will never be known. Powers later recanted his confession, blaming two other men, figments of his imagination, alter egos he used to woo lonely women. He said the beatings he sustained at the hands of the crooked cops forced him to confess. Back in the garage, Powers at some point took little Harry from the cellar to the first floor. Then, one by one, Powers led Asta and the girls upstairs to their slaughters. With the trap door open, he placed the noose around each of their necks as they stood at the ledge of the open trap. Then he shoved them off the edge to giddily watch as the life was slowly and painfully drained from them. To ensure each was dead, he smashed in their skulls with a hammer. As part of his satanic ritual, he forced young Harry to watch. But in the middle of it, he let out an awful scream. I was afraid the neighbors would hear it, so I picked up a hammer and let him have it. After disposing of the bodies in the ditch, Powers embarked on his trip to fetch Dorothy Lemke. On the way back to West Virginia, he and this poor woman stopped several times, posing happily for photos, Dorothy likely grinning at the prospect of happiness she thought was on the horizon. The smile on Powers' face fueled by the demonic fantasy he had in store. With Dorothy finally in the garage, Powers, his piercing blue eyes now like shards of ice, probably bragged about what had happened to the others as he dealt Dorothy the same hand. Her burial was less formal. She was never given the benefit of a shroud upon her disposal. Just hours after confessing to the Iker murders, inmates unearthed Dorothy's liquefying remains. 
Webbed rope was wrapped twice around her throat, the dress from the photo still on her corpse. Her hands were tied behind her back with the same cord used on the others. Her head was bashed in, too. Other damning items were found as well. In the remains of the fireplace at the burned-down farmhouse was discovered a wedding ring, its band engraved with the initials for Cornelius O. Powers, and the initials D.L., a woman's wristwatch engraved with the letters D.P.L., a bankbook belonging to Dorothy Lemke, charred love letters Powers received, one of which was signed Lothar, in the curly script of a woman's hand. And speaking of a woman's hand, searchers unearthed the skeletal remains of one. It was never positively identified, but the evidence that mounted after a trunk of women's clothing was found in a rented shed suggested to whom it may have belonged. Dozens of photographs were in the trunk, each bearing a name on the back. One had the name D.L. Lothar, indicating she was the woman in the picture. Of all the things Harry Powers stole, it appears he stole his victims' names, too. When informed that the body of Dorothy Lemke was found, the always cool Powers barely fought the smile, pursuing his lips. That's the last one. There are no more out there. The trial for the murder of Dorothy Lemke was swift. By December, Harry Powers was sitting before a judge in a packed 1,200-seat theater being used as the courtroom. The old Clarksburg courthouse had been torn down before all this trouble began, and the new one was still under construction. Moore's Opera House was large enough to accommodate the proceedings and the hundreds of trial watchers. Outside, thousands crowded the streets as hawkers sold short stories and music on the case and mementos of the garage torn apart by souvenir hunters. The state presented more than three dozen witnesses, including Dorothy's sister and brother-in-law, who identified the gum-chewing defendant as the man who took Dorothy away. There were neighbors who saw him at the quiet dog garage late at night and filling in the ditch there during the day. There was the banker who told a 14-year-old Greta's attempt to cash a check, more bankers who identified Powers as the A.R. Weaver who cashed two checks for about four grand drawn on Dorothy's account, even more bankers who said Powers deposited nearly that amount into his account in early September. The prosecutor held up the dead women's blood-stained clothes. He displayed for the jury the length of rope found knotted around Dorothy's neck. The doctor who performed the autopsies recounted in stomach-turning detail his findings. The jury of 12 men, since women were not allowed to be seated on a jury in this place at this time, heard from jailers of Powers' confession, from witnesses who saw him with a woman believed to be Dorothy outside his torture chamber, from a psychologist who examined the inmate who must have been insane to commit such terrible deeds. In a curiously worded diagnosis, Dr. Edward Meyer from the University of Pittsburgh said, Powers is a psychopathic personality, as shown by his seclusive nature, wanderings, extreme restlessness, inability to understand himself and his sex life. This type is not insane, but nearer insanity than normal people. Powers is of the hypopituary type, squat, short-billed, pig-eyed, paunchy, with weakened sexual powers. He is not insane, but he has been a borderline case all of his life. When it was the defense's turn, Powers, the best-dressed man in the room, took the stand in his own defense. He denied it all, saying Dorothy left him for a man named Cecil Johnson when they stopped in Pennsylvania, 
that it was Johnson who urged him to cash Dorothy's checks with her blessing under the name A.R. Weaver. He said he met Dorothy in Clarksburg, not through some Lonely Hearts Club, but through an acquaintance named Charles Rogers, the same man he claimed Asta Iker had gone off to meet. Rogers had a key to the garage, Powers said. It was evident to him that Rogers and Johnson were in cahoots in the killings. Powers was animated, smiling kindly at his attorney, bobbing his head up and down to punctuate facts he thought were important. But when explaining why he joined a matrimonial agency in the first place, Powers cried for the jury, blaming that on the mythical Rogers, too. His marriage was a shambles, he said. Luella was about to drive him crazy. I became desperate. I planned to get a divorce. There was a dispute at home and I left. Rogers said, I know what I would do in your place. Get someone else. Rogers, who Harry claimed was a Chicago gangster, then introduced him to the American Friendship Society and pointed out ads from Lemke and Iker, he said. After three days of testimony, it took the jury of farmers and businessmen just under two hours to return a verdict of guilty. From the bench center stage in the Moore Opera House, with Powers slowly chewing gum as he'd done throughout that trial that he looked on as an imposition, the judge sentenced the butcher of Clarksburg to death. As the cavalier Powers was led from the makeshift courtroom, his apathy toward the events was revealed. Spotting a loop of electrical wire in the theater's rafters, he chuckled and said to the bailiff, There's a noose. Then, disappearing behind the stage door for transport back to Moundsville, he posed a single question for his escort. What's for dinner? Situated in a stone and brick building known as the Death House, the gallows at Moundsville State Prison would stretch the necks of 85 killers from 1899 to the last hanging in 1949. Just before Harry Powers embarked on his bloodbath in the garage at Quiet Dell, Frank Heyer ascended the 13 steps to the scaffold. Heyer found himself in this predicament after a night of whiskey drinking that ended with him killing his wife. But things at the gallows didn't go quite as planned. Hangings followed the long drop method perfected in Ireland in the late 1800s. The method calculated a prisoner's height and weight to determine how far the body should drop in order to swiftly and humanely break the neck. The goal was for instantaneous death, none of that writhing and kicking about that comes with strangulation. Such a scene would be distasteful to the often haughty witnesses that treated these events as theater. But whoever worked the formula for Hire's hanging must have been a writer. As the condemned man's body jettisoned through the trapdoor, his head popped off, sending a fountain of blood skyward. The calculations, the warden explained later in a statement crafted to absolve him of his own failings, didn't take into account the weak neck muscles of the 200-pound hire. In another less-than-stellar review of Moundsville's executioners, Orville Atkins, 24, should have been allowed to go home after what happened to him when he stepped onto the platform. Before the noose was around his neck, the trap door tripped, and an untethered Orville free-fell to the gallow pit below. But a free pass wasn't in the cards for poor Orville, who was condemned to die for the 1937 kidnapping and death of a Huntington, West Virginia doctor. Jailers collected the pitiful malefactor from the pit, marched him, moaning up the stairs a second time, and completed what they'd all come there for. 
Compared to these offerings, the Thursday, March 18, 1932, hanging of the blue beard of Quiet Dell was as boring as he appeared to think his trial was. An hour before Powers stepped from his cell to take his final bow, he was on the verge of a nervous collapse. The receipt of one final love letter, the vehicle that proved to be the beginning and end of all of his troubles, brought him to tears. The note from his West Virginia bride professing her undying love nearly put him over the edge. I am heartbroken and so distressed I can hardly live. Oh, I think it's terrible to give you up under such circumstances. May you have a home in heaven where there is no sorrow, and some sweet day I will come to see you, dear, and live forever with you. But when the warden came to collect Harry for his close-up, he found Powers dressed to the nines and as calm as a mill pond. Wearing a dark blue striped suit, white shirt, and a tie fastened in a four-in-hand knot, Powers was again the best-dressed man around as he walked to the shiny white gallows. He was pinioned at the elbows and wrists, then climbed the gibbet stairs and was trussed at the knees. He stood on the drop as witnesses watched in silence, and the chaplain murmured prayers around him. Luella hadn't come to see the curtain call of her dolly dimple sugar lump. As a matter of fact, she didn't leave her house much over the next 25 years, what with the whole country wondering if she was involved in Harry's horror show. After all, she benefited from the money he took, admitting to police she deposited a check from Asta Iker that Harry had given her on the day of his arrest, and she cleaned out his safe deposit box a day later. She was even sleeping on bed sheets taken from Dorothy Lemke. Quite frankly, Luella was lucky the prosecutor never pursued charges against her. There was a banker in Illinois who said that just before Asta Iker disappeared, Harry arrived at the bank with Asta to discuss the sale of her property, and the two were not alone. Accompanying them was a plump woman with red hair, who looked an awful lot like sweet, simple Luella. No, for more than two decades Luella rarely left her house, after all that had come to light. In 1958, a month after her sister Eva Bell died, Harry Powers' heartsick widow went belly up too. But it didn't really matter to Harry, who was in the galley anyway. As proof, he forewent his round spectacles opting instead to meet his maker with myopic eyes. Warden Scoggins inquired of the doomed lady killer, Have you anything you wish to say, Harry? Powers, blinking red-rimmed eyes, answered through an awkward smile. No. The guard stepped up quickly and covered that smile in a black hood. Next, the warden pulled the waxed hemp rope down over Powers's head, tightening the last of its thirteen loops just below Harry's left ear. The three hangmen, each in command of a lever, only one of which was connected to the spring of the trap, waited for the signal. At the warden's slight nod at exactly 9 p.m., the men pulled the handles in unison. None of this ceremony and dignity was shown to Asta, Greta, Annabelle, Little Harry, and Dorothy. Whereas victims had struggled in terror, the devil of Quiet Dell simply fell through the trap with a tried-and-true formula that delivered a snap at the end and broke his rotten, evil neck. He lured them with love letters and told them pretty lies. They saw his fancy roadster and silk ties. The women and their children 
He brought the quiet deal And he kept them where no one could hear them yell So go and tell your neighbor He's sleeping at the jail We're gonna hang the evil out of Harrison County So good folks will prevail Hop around Clarksburg There's a little piece of hell Did you hear about the crime at Quiet Dale? Did you hear about the crime at Quiet Dale? Did you hear about the crime at Quiet Dale? Ah, uh, yeah, you did. Beep, 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 quiet Dale. That song you heard throughout the episode was The Crime at Quiet Dale by Chris Stewart and Backcountry from their crooked man album check them out i i played it all through the podcast and i've been singing it in my head while i do drywall in my abode shout out to ft norton for their research for their for her research and writing on old dolly dimple sugar lump there hope you like my accents um please if you want more dark topic check out our patreon that's 1159 media Patreon. I do something called Dead Time Stories at the $13 tier. It's called Tier 13. I do them. I try to do them as often as I can. Sometimes it might be once a month. Hopefully I'm going to get to the time where it's three times a month. The goal is at least two. And uh, they're old school dark topic episodes. Feel The feel of them. Um, I'd like to talk about True Crime Kent. It's a new podcast from 1159 Media with my buddy Kent Chungus, me and the operator's friend uh, from the Dark Topic audience. We found him. He was, I've spoken about it before, I'm sure, but he was uh, commenting on stuff and we're like, holy shit, this guy's hilarious. And and we've started a podcast with him called True Crime Kent. Please go subscribe and uh, review. He's killing it over there with True Crime Kent. Very consistent. Uh, Three episodes a month is what we're shooting for there. 911 Calls Podcast is another one that I'm a part of with 1159 with The Operator. Uh, right now we've taken a little bit of a hiatus, but we're coming back really strong soon with season two of 911 Calls Podcast with the Operator. Other than that, Leroy Luna, my brother, uh, excuse me, that's illegal, is blowing up. Give him a listen if you haven't yet. A hardcore look at softcore crimes. I hope you're having a happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever the fuck you want to do. Just spend time with family and, and enjoy yourselves. Um, even if it's against the law. No, I don't. I mean, fuck where I'm at. It's a red alert. You can't even have family here. So we're, we're lonely. Uh, thankfully, some of our families move close to us. But overall, it's it's uh, lonely times for a lot of people. I know it's hard and weird and difficult time for many out there. I can't speak to it. I've been quarantined for a decade. It's a. Um, you know, it's kind of a normal situation situation for me, other than they put a blanket over the overpriced made in China toy section at the pharmacy, which hurts. But other than that, I can't complain. I'll keep working on all the stuff I just mentioned and uh, just be grateful. I'm, I'm bringing consistency with Dark Topic. Like I said, it's the least I could do uh, to show my appreciation for your continued interest and support for this show. Take care of yourselves, big love. Until next time, eyes cocked, doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you.